Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode in our podcast series, Beyond Markets. My name is Perlin Wong, and I'm Head of Investment Promotion and Solutions Asia. Today, we have with us Damien Ng, my research colleague from the Next Generation team based in Zurich. We also have a special guest with us today, Dame Inga Biel. Inga worked nearly four decades in financial services, culminating in the role of CEO of the centuries-old financial institution Lloyd's of London from 2014 to 2018. She has done much in a role at Lloyd's to break down barriers and build an inclusive environment. In 2015, Inga became the first female and bisexual person to top the outstanding and FT-leading LGBT executive power list. Today, she is a champion for women and the LGBTQ community and continues to call for organizations to take real action. Hello, Damien and Inga. Welcome to our special Pride Edition episode about diversity matters. Hello, Perlin. Hi, Perlin. Hello. So June is Pride Month, a month where we can all take a moment to celebrate our diverse differences and work together towards a more inclusive and fair future. Damien, can I ask you, what does diversity mean to you? And why do you think it matters to you and at work? Now, when we look at the definition of diversity, it refers in essence to the existence of different characteristics among a group of people. So in that sense, or in that context, diversity can take many different forms in a social context. At work, it means our colleagues can come from different culture backgrounds and have different gender, sexual orientation, and of course also age and physical disabilities, just to name a few. Now, when employers celebrate, encourage, and value the expression of every person's unique identity at the workplace, employees feel that their self-esteem and integrity are supported. After all, everyone wants to be accepted for who they are, right? as their authentic selves. So ultimately, the positive effects of diversity and inclusion are higher job satisfaction, greater productivity, better engagement and retention rates, as well as improved interpersonal connections. On a personal level, I'm happy to see that Julius Baer aims to be an employer that creates a diverse, inclusive working environment for all, regardless of their cultural backgrounds, gender, and sexual orientation. That's very interesting, and thank you for sharing. I have to second what you have said. I've worked at Julius Baer for almost 15 years, and I've been given the opportunity to grow in my career, and now I lead a small team. As an Asian female in a committed same-sex relationship, I'm blessed to be part of a diverse and inclusive team. Damien, could you share about some of the DNI initiatives at Julius Baer? Uh, sure, Pauline. Now, for instance, HR recognizes employment equality for all ex- employees, regardless of their culture, backgrounds, gender, and sexual orientation. Also, just two weeks ago, in order to show Julius Baer support 
for diversity and inclusion, especially during the Pride Month, Julius Bears began displaying five rainbow flags on top of the office building located at Morgartenstraße here in Zurich. Inga, could you tell us about your personal experiences and as the CEO of Lloyd's leading the diversity charge? What spurred you to make a difference? Well, yeah, sure. I'm very happy to talk about a little bit about my personal life anyway, and then particularly around why I wanted to do something when I got to Lloyd's. I've had various phases in my life. I remember being a very young girl and feeling the odd one out with my siblings because my brother and sister were born with white blonde hair and I was born with dark brown hair. So they told me I was the odd one out and adopted. So I grew up feeling a little bit different to them. Then I started working a long time ago now in the 80s. And at that time, then I was this heterosexual woman fighting in predominantly what was a man's world, man's world in the financial district in the heart of the city of London in the 80s. So, and then I had another phase to my life. I became a little bit of a, I suppose, a roving feminist. I, I got a bit angry and disillusioned with the world of insurance, feeling that as a female, I didn't necessarily have a chance to succeed. So I went traveling around the world trying to find myself. I did go back to London and then I entered another phase of my life. And this is when I became a lesbian and I, I started to have my first same-sex relationship. So I was now with a woman. And then some years later, many years later, I've now got another label and that's bisexual because I'm now with a man. Again, I suppose I should say after many, many years. So I've at times of my life, particularly in the workplace, not felt I can be truly open about who I was at work. When I was working in the 80s, there was no mention of inclusion at all. And in the 90s, when I, I did have my first same-sex relationship, there was no way I had the courage to come out of the closet about my sexuality because there was no support network. Nobody dared mention anything about anyone's sexuality. And so I know how it feels if you don't feel you belong somewhere, if you feel you're the odd one out. So when I arrived at Lloyd's and I realized that I'd inherited a very old institution that had been around for centuries, but that wasn't very diverse and it wasn't very modern, I thought, you know what, I've got to do something about diversity and inclusion in the workplace here. We've got to make sure that we have a really good representation from all sorts of communities. And particularly, whatever community you're from, you feel respected and valued at work. Hence, I started many things when I was at Lloyd's. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. We'll have more questions for you very shortly. Damien, I turn to you now just Maybe if you could share, is diversity something which is prioritized in Asia based on your research in the region? Why or why not? You know, Pelin, compared with the more socially advanced societies in the West, Asian societies may appear less open-minded, less advanced in issues relating to LGBT and gender equality in a contemporary context. But academic research has shown that ancient societies across Asia, such as China, India, and Japan have had more tolerant traditions when it came to same-sex relationships, and this is reflected in poetry, fiction, art, lives of emperors, Buddhist priests, and samurais. 
Now, this changed around 19th and 20th centuries with increasing westernization. Now, coming back to modern-day world, societies across Asia have begun to become more tolerant for diversity again due to greater exposure and understanding, primarily driven by the younger population. Inga, is it too simplistic, perhaps, to say that there is an East versus West approach when it comes to, to this topic? Well, there are certainly differences all over the world. But in some of the Western cultures that I'm more familiar with, we've had some huge things happening in the past. Certainly around LGBT rights, this really kicked off uh, with the Stonewall riots in the US in 1969, when there was a police raid of an LGBT bar. And this led to all sorts of rioting where people said, no, we want to have our rights. We do not want to be criminals just because of our sexuality. And actually, a couple of years earlier in the UK, they decriminalized homosexuality. So in 1967, in certain circumstances, they decriminalized it. Actually, not fully, though, until 2003. That was when all types of gay sexuality wasn't penalized at all in the UK. So that was some time ago. And there have also been many laws passed to prevent discrimination on, against people based on their gender, their race, their religion, their sexuality. And these have been in place for many years so that people are protected in the workplace. But of course, it's actually behaviors and some of the decisions when they're made in a company, in an organization, they can be a bit more subtle than that. So while you've got the laws out there, you have to dig much more. And I would have said that DNI initiatives, certainly in businesses, started on the gender subject in the 1970s, 80s, and then more broadly in the 90s to cover all sorts of aspects of diversity. And such, um, to such an extent that in the UK, for instance, the Bank of England, a few years ago, launched a charter for all financial services companies, banks, insurers, asset managers to sign up to a charter to say, do you know what, we're going to do something about making sure that there are more women in senior roles in financial services. And so they went out to the business community and said, sign up to this and put in place some actions and make sure you deliver on it. Well, that's really interesting. For businesses, many studies show that greater diversity does not just lead to happier employees. It also produces quantifiable financial results. A McKinsey report of over 360 global companies revealed that companies ranked in the top 25th percentile for racial and ethnic diversity were 35% more likely to have better average financial returns to their peers, while those in the top 25th percentile for gender diversity were 15% more likely to outperform their competitors. Inga, did you also see such tangible benefits at Lloyd's and how did you measure success? I thought it was very important to start making sure we had more diverse voices because it's the different viewpoints that you get around the table that ensure that you are actually going to think of things from all angles and you're able then to give all customer viewpoints. And when I arrived at Lloyd's, it was 328 years old and it was still doing business in the way that it had done for all of those centuries. And I looked and I said, why hasn't it modernized? Why hasn't it changed? And then I realized that most of the people who worked there were all the same. They, you know, they probably went to the same schools, they dressed the same, they spoke the same, they behaved the same, and they were feeling as though they were in a sort of club. And therefore, there was nobody 
challenging, nobody coming in with a different viewpoint. And I realized that if we were going to modernize, and my big challenge was to introduce technology into this paper-based environment, I thought, you know, I need some new people around the table. I need new employees. And so that's why we started to introduce all sorts of initiatives to make sure we were hiring different people, that they, we were retaining them. And we, we started to make sure that all our policies and practices were balanced and equal. And we saw real success. We opened a, up a Lloyd's lab. This was a real innovation lab. And we saw new ideas coming out because we had new people gathered with new ideas and we were creating new products. And because of the introduction of technology and with all the new creativity around that, we were able to show better um, productivity because we had much more efficient processes. And we also saw a great increase in, in employee engagement. Your employee surveys can tell you a lot. Higher employee engagement leads to better productivity and people will be more engaged if they feel respected and valued for their input, whatever their background and whatever other characteristics they have. Right. And this is also beneficial for investors who are looking at investing in, in such companies. There is growing evidence that ESG-focused companies tend to fare better. They deliver superior risk-adjusted returns. Diversity is part of the S, the social element, and G, the governance dimensions of the ESG framework. Damien, what have you been hearing from our clients about the importance of ESG for them? Yes, increasingly both institutional and retail investors have shown growing interest in investments that incorporate ESG factors, namely like what you just said, Perlin, environmental, social and governance. But I hasten to say that there are differences between the two different groups of investors. Now, while institutional investors are more likely to consider ESG investing as a way to generate higher returns, retail investors tend to look at ESG characteristics to express the personal views on a particular subject. So for this reason, we take ESG, I mean, Julius Baer, take ESG investing seriously since a commitment to ESG investing helps increase the trust that clients and investors have in the financial services industry. Right. So if I flip things around, Inga, would you say that sitting on the inside, you have felt and you have witnessed a positive relationship between how investors perceive you uh, when you were in the uh, board or in the management of a corporation, when you increase diversity uh, within that organization? Well, I'm with Damien on this, that there's been a huge change more recently. And I can remember, I don't know, sort of five years ago or so, people were talking a lot about ESG. And there were noises and people were putting out amazing statements about how they were going to focus on this. But actually, when it came to particularly that sort of the people side of it, that D&I side, you didn't really see any people taking action. So investors weren't really voting. They were just talking a lot. But now I feel a real difference. And we've had, I now chair a FTSE listed company. And I can tell you with some of the interactions I'm having with investors, they want to see that what we've been saying we're going to do is real. And they are going to be perhaps voting against companies if they find out that actually it's just some corporate blah, blah, or some marketing spiel at the front end. And the transparency here is a huge driver, I think, as to why businesses are now really having to do something about it. 
You've got the investor pressure for sure now. It's really rising up, particularly in Europe. But you've also got the fact that you can't go and say something. As a CEO, you can't go and say, we're doing this in, the, in an organization, because then you find, particularly with the impact of social media and the ability for employee groups to get together and publish things in the public domain about what's really happening in a company, you realize as a CEO, you can no longer necessarily just get away with making some good statements because your employees can actually get the truth out there very, very easily. And we've seen this with some major, particularly US organizations who've said one thing and reality is something different inside. And in fact, we've got a recent example also in the UK where employees have actually said, the CEO told you everything was wonderful inside. We can tell you it's not. And that's why there's a real change, it feels to me, around the focus between investors and whether corporations are really doing the right thing for their people. And one of the things that's actually happened in the UK is that now listed companies under the governance rules are required to have one of their non-executive directors responsible for workforce engagement. Now, this is a real change. And most boards are, are trying to work out how best to do this. You can do a couple of alternatives. You can actually have some employees voted onto the board, or you could have a formal employee advisory group for the board. The board I chair, we've actually decided to go for a non-executive director responsible for workforce engagement. And this has got to be real because now investors want to know that this NED is actually taking it seriously and they, they probably want to have some conversations with them to really dig deeper into what's going on in the organization. So Damien, once again, wearing the investor hat or the advisor hat, how easy it is with all that Inga said and all that's happened in the last few years, how easy is it for investors now to finally measure diversity within the ESG context? Sure, Pauline. Let me try to respond to that. Is that while there are quantifiable metrics around company actions related to energy efficiency or executive pay, there are far fewer metrics concerning social factors such as diversity investing. Uh, there is a saying that, you know, that goes, you can't manage what you can't measure. Currently, there is no universal standard for measuring diversity in organizations. Gender diversity, which arguably receives greatest awareness within the field of diversity, has seen significant progress in data disclosure and reporting. But companies are still unwilling to disclose other types of diversity employment data for sensitivity reasons, for privacy reasons. Now, for instance, data and index provider S&P Global said that only about a third of the companies has access has globally provided the public with breakdowns of their workforce by race and ethnicity. As a result, investor awareness when it comes to diversity scores for companies is lower than, for instance, the scores for climate change and environmental issues. Now, what we tend to hear rather more often is the negative news flow about the lack of diversity at certain organizations or stakeholder litigations against companies failing to follow up on pledges on diversity with concrete actions. I see. So there is probably some healthy skepticism still uh, around when a company declares itself as uh, being more DNI, for example. So Inga, was it difficult or is it difficult today to prove to investors that organizations are actually taking this topic seriously or 
do the results show themselves? Are they self-evident after some time? Well, hopefully the results will be self-evident because of the success of the organization. So if we believe all of those reports that have been done about the importance of diversity and inclusion leading to better returns and better profits, hopefully over time it will become evident. But actually, I'm totally with Damien on this, what, you know, if you can't measure something, how can you manage it? So actually, I was very keen, and this is what we started to do at Lloyd's, we put in place targets for better gender balance, and we reported openly against those targets every year. We also put in place some racial targets because we wanted to make sure that we were reflecting in the makeup of our employee base, the population at large in London. We also were able to, because even though your sexuality is a protected characteristic and you cannot ask or force an employee to tell you that, declare it. We provided such a safe culture at work that when I arrived, less than 10% of people were declaring that field. But by the time I left, over 90% of the employees were completing that field because they knew that there were no negative repercussions if they were open about that. And so then we were able to start measuring how engaged and if we had any difficulties with promoting and retaining our LGBT staff. So we were then able to put in targets against them and report on those. But this benchmarking for the investor community is incredibly tough. In the UK, there are a few nationally recognized indices being used, but it's all voluntary. So you just rely on each organization, each business, each company to bother to sign up to one of these. And then you can't really compare them all, you see, because if they're all signing up to different ones, it's not really a benchmark. So we've got to do some more work around this, for sure. Right. So that means, Inga, if I hear you correctly, that it is voluntary um, work is being done in this space, which then begs the question for corporations, if management changes, which it does over time, how can they ensure that diversity is embedded in the DNA of the company over the long term? For your example, did you still see the work you started at Lloyd's continue after you left? I did. And for me, it was so important because I committed to doing that role for five years. It was so important that it was going to be lasting and sustainable. So we made sure that we looked at all the core policies and all the core practices within the Lloyd's and we changed them all to make sure they were completely balanced. We tapped into our different groups of employees to check that they were comfortable with the wording. Did it reflect them? So all of that was changed. We also spent money on training our managers and our employees so that in such things as understanding the biases that go on, whether they're unconscious or conscious, we're all biased in a certain way and we make business decisions based on our biases. So we spent a lot of time training all the people on this. We also made sure that managers knew how to manage diverse teams. So all of this was really embedding it in the full DNA. And then importantly, we started to include behaviors in the performance reward system. So how you behaved at work and treated people became part of an individual's annual performance assessment. Damien, we have heard Inga say that it's quite challenging to manage organizations and ensure that the change is lasting. Um, and of course, we've also heard of misunderstandings or conflicts occurring 
due to different interpretations of languages, communications, especially between cultures. Do you believe that cultural diversity training is important for organizations who are serious about DNI? Oh yes, Pauline, definitely. And I'd like to confirm what uh, Inga just said about the importance of training within the company itself. Because, for instance, in Asian societies, as you know, there is a greater emphasis on maintaining social harmony when interacting with others. Now, in Japanese language, for example, yes may not necessarily mean yes, and no may not necessarily mean no. So, for some cultures, especially those that value, you know, direct communication. This type of communication, as in in Japanese language, may come across as inefficient and ambiguous. But of course, for many in you know, for those in Asia, the type of communication that they are used to can be interpreted as over. Oh, I mean that they are not used to. I mean, in the West, for example, is that they can interpret that as overly blunt and impolite. So, for this reason, I personally think that it is definitely a good idea that companies. Should invest in training, yeah, you know, for greater. I mean, for the fostering of DNI. It's also often said that diversity can be described as being invited to the party, but being included is actually being asked to dance at a party. So, Inga, what are the ways we can ensure that organizations are equipped to manage diverse teams to make them feel included? Yes, Perlin, and this is all about the leadership, isn't it? I mean, as a leader, you don't. You know, you go up through the the ranks of a company, and you get promoted, and you get to manage teams. Some of this, if you haven't read about it or learned about it, you're suddenly leading a, a group of people who are very, very different. You need to be skilled appropriately for that. And I have, in my life, made the mistake of hiring people all like me because it was easier to manage. But that doesn't mean you get the best results. So I'm a firm believer in equipping your managers. To be able to manage diverse teams, to reflect on each person's characteristics sitting around the table or in that team, because these days, of course, so much is virtual. But respecting what how they want to be treated, so sort of treat them and try and bring them into the conversation in the way that they feel comfortable with, because you're going to have many, many different people sitting around there saying, "Actually, that I find offensive." That makes me want to speak. That makes me want to shut up. And you've got to manage that as a leader. Huge skill required. So it's important that that companies, organisations, can equip and skill up their managers to be able to do that. We've also heard of greenwashing. Is there a similar thing, or for lack of a better term, diversity washing, Inga? Well, certainly for the Pride Month around the world, it's called rainbow washing. So putting out your pride flags and changing the look of your logo to have the rainbow in it for the month of June, and sometimes it's really hard to tell if a company is simply rainbow washing or actually doing something about it internally. And these things can take a while. So a CEO at the top might want to make a difference and. Make things change very quickly, but these things can take years to have a real impact to change a culture. So there might be all sorts of things actually that have started within an organisation, and they want to publicly show that they're supportive of a certain community. I always say the best way to see if something's really happening is to look at the top of the organisation. Don't just take for granted what the marketing teams have put together. Look at what's happening. Look at the leadership. Who are they? What do they represent? And how diverse are they? Inga, did you find that the inculcation of greater diversity and inclusion in Lloyd's culture made a difference to how customers perceived the organization? 
yes, we did indeed, Perlin. We had a, I mean, we could see and hear from our customers that they thought now Lloyd's was modern. <laughs> so they'd had this perception that we were somehow very old fashioned, a little mysterious, a little unapproachable. By publicly stating our targets around diversity and inclusion, by sharing our progress reports publicly, me talking a lot about it on the public stage using my influence, customers were actually perceiving Lloyd's in a very, very different way. They thought suddenly, wow, we're modern. We've joined the modern world. And they also saw this huge festival that we launched. We launched a diversity and inclusion festival in 2015. It's called the Dive In Festival. And it was really about teaching people about the importance of diversity inclusion, but also celebrating difference, really celebrating how joyous and how successful and fun it can be if you have diversity within your organization. And particularly, this was aimed at the whole world of insurance. So where, whatever company you were in, wherever you are in the world, because this is not a one company problem. This is a business issue and a societal issue. Right, right. I have to agree with that. Finally, I would like to ask both of you this. How do you think this diversity topic will evolve over the next few years, let's say three to five years? Will it be individuals, corporations or governments leading the way? Damien, perhaps could start with you. Sure, uh, Pauline. Now, for me, the topic on diversity will certainly gather greater momentum as human societies evolve and progress, with individuals, corporations leading the way on a bottom-up basis. And with that, I'd like to summarize the topic of diversity by parting with our listeners with two very meaningful proverbs in both Chinese and Japanese languages that my parents taught me when I was young that certainly captures the essence of diversity in our society. And that is, 一种米饭, 一种米能养百种人 in Chinese, and 九人多一路 in Japanese. Now, what the Chinese proverb means, the same type of rice can raise up to 100 types of different people. The Japanese one says, 10 people, 10 colors. So in essence, they mean that everyone is different and has his or her different story to tell. Thank you very much, Pauline. Oh, I love that. How about you, Inga? Do you agree with Damien that it will gain traction? And who will champion this cause? Absolutely, Pauline. It is gaining traction and it will continue to. And as with most things in life, particularly when they're difficult to achieve, we need to approach this from all angles. And of course, corporations need to drive this whole thing forward. There's an expectation now that CEOs must do this to ensure that their business is successful, prospers into the future, stays modern and moves forward. But we may also need government's involvement, particularly when progress is a bit slow. And for sure, individuals play a large part. Every single one of us as an individual can do something to make an impact. We can speak up when we think something's inappropriate, when someone's perhaps being treated unfairly. And we can all do that at any stage of day or night in any circumstance. So we can play a huge impact just as human beings. That's really, really meaningful. Thank you, Damien and Inga, for your insights and valuable takeaways. Let me conclude with a few words. Clearly, diversity is more than just a tagline or even a buzzword. 
it's about being open to different perspectives, respecting the views of people from a variety of backgrounds and beliefs, and mindfully including everyone in the conversation. So that's, to me, that the only way we can get a complete picture of the world. For businesses like ours and many around the world, um, an inclusive culture sets the foundations for innovation and meritocracy. It improves organizational performance and ultimately has the benefits of higher financial and shareholder returns. Leaders with the proper training and support play an important role because they have the power to enact change. However, let's remember that we can also all play a part in our day-to-day lives to make the change we want to see happen. Thank you to everyone for tuning in to this special Pride edition of our Beyond Markets podcast on Diversity Matters. Stay healthy, happy and safe. Goodbye. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.